even the very basic things of physics. We don't know where they come from. If you say, where does time come from? Where does space come from? Where does charge come from? Where does spin come from? All these things are basic things of physics and nobody has a clue of where they come from. They just are. Welcome back. I'm here again with Tom Campbell. Tom, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Good to be here. All right. We don't have a lot of time. <laughs> so this, I'm not really being fair to you. I mean, and we have a little bit less than an hour. I apologize for not giving you the full scope that you would need to outline your big theory of reality. Well, I'll try to, to do it quickly, and then maybe we'll have some time for questions. I can take more time. If we run out of time and we still are going on and we, we're still making you know, sense here, then I can keep going for a little extra. So that's all right if we run okay, out Okay, so of what time. I'll do is I'll sit back and I won't interrupt you this time around and just let oh, you go. <laughs> no, go ahead and interrupt me because, I mean, you know your audience. And if I'm off saying something that you think my audience just isn't going to follow this because they don't have the background, well, then just interrupt me and say, well, what about that? You know, try to ask the questions that you think your audience would. And I'm more likely, if I interrupt you, it'll be more likely to clarify because I like to get into some of the technical stuff. I'll just, if there's an acronym or something like that, I'll try to translate. Yeah, I try not to use acronyms when I talk to a general audience, I, or if I use them, I tend to then throw out the words to go with them because I know that it just stops people in their tracks because they don't know what the acronym means. But anyway, okay, so let's just talk about this theory. This theory started out primarily as a theory of consciousness. It was a theory mm -hmm. to explain all those things I experienced at the lab at Monroe Institute. So here I am, a physicist. I want to understand how does it work. So I start the painstaking, slogging science, which is the way science mostly works. You know, science isn't somebody suddenly says Eureka and then comes up with a brilliant idea. Usually there's a lot of just chugging, you know, work goes on behind the scenes there. So I'm leaving the area and not really involved so much except for once, you know, a day a year with Monroe. And for the next 35 years, what I'm doing is experiments because with Bob, I learned that I could go into an altered state, go out of body on demand whenever I wanted to. It was something that I could do and I could do it precisely. So how long did that take you to do? Well, at least learn how to do know. it. Yeah. Six months to a year. Okay. All right. Something that sounds, like that. that sounds, that sounds legitimate. About six months to a year. Dennis and I both caught on to it pretty quickly. And besides we had Bob Monroe as our teacher. So it, you know, it went pretty, pretty quickly. We were both open-minded and we just let things flow. We figured, well, if this turns out to be a bunch of crap, then we'll leave. If it doesn't, well, we'll keep up with it. So we kept keeping on and it started to build up evidence. Oh yeah, okay, we're doing this remote viewing and we're getting targets right. We're practicing healing, we're practicing communication, uh, consciousness to consciousness. So Dennis and I were always setting up experiments where there was evidential data. So you could tell whether what you were doing was real. Did you really get the target or not? And so we'd always were, we didn't do anything much that was just go explore. 
Occasionally we did that when Bob came in later and sat down at the controls and then maybe we just go do some exploring. But Dennis and I, we wanted to know what the facts were. And so we did a lot of evidential stuff. And, you know, the evidence starts to pile up and pretty soon it's like, you know, 100,000 to one that we're just lucky that we're able to get the right answers. And we go to see Cousin Sally and we see her, you know, and she's got this big pair of red boots, you know, sitting in the middle of her bed. So we call her up and say, Sally, you know, it's just doing some remote viewing exercises. And do you have some red boots sitting on your bed? And yeah, I just bought those. I bought them just, you know, yesterday or the day before. And, you know, so we get those kind of answers. And eventually, when you do that 100 times, you know, we did this for years. This was 1971, 72, you know, all the way through about 75, 76, 15, 20 hours a week. This is what we're doing. So, you know, we did this, it's not like once or twice, we did this hundreds and hundreds of times. So we mm -hmm. had all of this evidence building up. And eventually you get to a point where you stop asking, is it real? You know, it's real. But you know, it was hard to get over that lump because I knew it was real. Like I say, 100,000 to one that we were somehow just lucky guessers at getting these answers, you know, that these things would happen. But still, you have this idea, well, you know, yeah, but, you know, maybe there's just something, yeah, but. Could have been this, could have been that. Yeah, you yeah. just have a hard time getting there. And then I finally had an experience with Dennis that just after that, you know, we both went out of body together. And Bob is an experiment that Bob did. He says, you two stay together, go up, meet above the lab, just stick together. That's the only rule. Stick together and go have an experience. So we did. And we stuck together. And, uh, you know, two hours later, you know, we get out of the lab, we come back and Bob Monroe had both of, of our voices recorded because the way we worked in the lab is there was a mic right over our, and we did a kind of a real time what was happening to us all the time. So that was the way we worked and that's the way we trained. So we got used to working that way. So we were there, but we could talk at the same time describing what we were seeing and doing. Is that by location? Not really. The way it worked for me is that I was there and I could put that on hold, come back and talk and then go back to uh, it, come back okay. and talk and then go back to it. It's like I could put it on pause and come back and go to it. So and anyway, we were doing and I'm not sure Dennis did that. He may have had his own technique for dealing with that, but that's the way I dealt with it. In any case, so we were on this trip and we talked and had a little mic that was coming down from the ceiling just above our lips. And, you know, we weren't talking very loudly. It was very, very soft. And we're in these rooms separated, so we couldn't hear each other. So we come out of our check units and, you know, it's hard to stay, you know, your eyes, you know, so bright out there in the lab, you know, and you've been in the dark for a couple of hours. So anyway, Bob says, well, do you guys think you were together? And Dennis and I looked at each other and I, I said, yeah, well, I think so. And Dennis said, yeah, I think so. So he said, well, listen to this. And he flipped both of the tapes in synchronous, you know, together. He turned them both on at the same time so they'd be in sync. And there was Dennis and I talking to each other. I'd ask him a question. He'd give me an answer. We were just having conversations. We'd look at things. Oh, look at that. Let's go over, you know, and explore that. And he'd say, okay, you mean the thing where the big yellow tower is? And I said, yeah, that's the one. And, you know, it's just that was going on. And it was just so totally clear that we both were at the same place, seeing the same things, interacting. And this whole thing went on, like I say, for an hour and a half to two hours. 
of this. There was literally hundreds of places where we were interacting. Now, up until that point, I had this, yeah, but maybe the mind is working in ways we don't understand, and it's in your subconscious, and that's, you know, I couldn't really explain it, but uh, there was always this, this not quite sure what's going on. Well, this wasn't just my mind. This was two people, independent people, who couldn't hear each other, were isolated completely, and they not only were having conversation, but they were seeing things in an out-of-body experience in mm -hmm. some other reality frame. Two people seeing exactly the same things, interacting with exactly the same entities, having the same conversations, you know? So that then was something that I just couldn't say, yeah, but, you know, it's like, but nothing, you know, that's it. So that was the point for me where I no longer said, is this real? I just didn't have to go there anymore. You know, it convinced me down at a deep level, at the being level that, yes, it's absolutely real. It's no trick. It's no secret part of your mind playing tricks with you or anything else. It's just real. It's just the way it is. It's a part of the reality that's bigger. So I got to that with Dennis probably I don't know, two or three years in, I guess, maybe mm -hmm. three years in. And then later, Nancy Lee, other people call her Scooter. It's Nancy McMonagall, married to Joe now, but mm -hmm. that was Bob's stepdaughter. And we did the same thing. We did an out-of-body together. And sure enough, later, when we talked about it, we were both there, saw the same things, did the same thing. So that was like a second corroboration. It wasn't just Dennis and I, because we'd worked together so long. So anyhow, that made it absolutely real for me and i never questioned it after that so after that it was well let's figure out how it works so for the next 35 years i'm changing a variable see what the results are changing another variable seeing what the results are you know and that's tedious work like if you're healing or if you're remote viewing i could go to the exact same state every time so i knew that was not a variable and then i could approach it in certain ways doing certain things and see how that affected the results I got on being able to get the right answers or not. And 35 years later, I came to the point where I thought, I think I understand this. Well enough to write about it. Well, as it turned out, I didn't understand it as well as I thought, because, you know, there's a big difference between talking about something and writing it down. Mm -hmm. Write it down, the writing actually forces clarity and continuity. Whereas when you talk about it and the ideas are a little fuzzy and you don't really notice that they're fuzzy because other people kind of get what you're saying. Voice conversations have a lot of fuzz to them. But when you write it down, well, you've got to say exactly what it is you mean. <laughs> and you can't have fuzzy language, you know, because fuzzy language in actual written text just looks like crap you know it's just fuzzy language and you look at it and it's just obvious you don't know what you're talking about mm -hmm. you know you're dancing around something so i got to any number of places where i said hmm i really don't understand that too much so i'd go work on it i'd do some experiments i'd do some research and try to solve that particular problem and if i got that solved i'd go on and get the next one so in the process of writing the book i actually also learned a lot so it took me about five years to write it and I published it in 
February 2003. And it was a theory of consciousness and explains consciousness, explained all the paranormal things, explained mind and what it is and how it works and where it comes from and consciousness and where that comes from and what it is. So it was that kind of a thing. And about two or three years later, I was talking to Ed Wilders, who was a, a guy who helped me work the website I had. He was kind of the manager of the chat rooms and stuff. So in any case, he asked me a series of questions. And as I thought about it, the answers, bingo, it came to me how quantum physics worked. You know, so I'm a physicist, so I'm aware of quantum physics and that it's mm -hmm. science and why it's weird and what is it that they don't under know. And suddenly I got it. I saw, well, that is the answer. This is how that works. So I then went back and spent a little time studying that and said, okay, I understand quantum physics now. It's not weird science. It's logical science. Mm. I got it. I know exactly what's happening when that wave function collapses to a particle. You know, that's kind of mysticism among physicists. That's the magic moment when a wave function, which is nothing but mathematics, collapses to a physical particle. How does mathematics collapse to a physical particle? You know, that is a kind of a big mystery and exactly how that works. You can't model things as if they're particles because you can't get the right answers. You have to model things as if they're probability. Right. That gets you right answers. So the stuff that gets you right answers is what's true. <laughs> and the stuff that doesn't get you right answers. And by right answers, I mean, it explains the output of experiments. You know, you do experiments and certain things happen. And then the theory has to have a theory that lets you calculate what those things are that happen. So you calculate the right things. That's what I meant by right answers. So you mm -hmm. can calculate the results of experiments only if you consider particles to not be particles, but to be probability distributions. And I understood exactly why that was. So then I said, well, what's the other big mystery? And that's in relativity, the big thing that's the mystery there is why is speed of light a constant? Speed of light's a constant. And in all other places, every place else in our reality, if you have something going at a speed and it eject something else, then the speeds add or subtract. I'm in a car, car's going 10 mile an hour. I reach out the window and I throw a ball, you know, 10 mile an hour in the same direction as the car. The ball's now going 20 mile an hour relative to the ground. You see? So velocities always add. Everything adds except for the speed of light. And it doesn't add at all. You have your flashlight going, you know, half the speed of light and you turn on the flashlight and this light comes out and it's still going to speed of light. It doesn't add. Why is that? So there's a little bit of magic about photons. They always travel the speed of light. They don't have any mass. You know, what's that about? And there's just a lot of things there that are, you know, a little on the mystical side of not really understanding how this stuff really works. So then I looked at it and I said, well, I know exactly why the speed of light has to be a constant. And it was just so obvious. So from the point is that from understanding consciousness, mm -hmm. I was able to derive physics. So yes, consciousness is fundamental. Consciousness is at the root and physics has to be derived from consciousness or can be derived from consciousness. Then physics is the next science up. And then after that, it's chemistry. And after that, it's biology, you know, the kind of 
increasing in the complexity and, and what's going on, but the fundamental stuff underneath is consciousness. So that came to me. So then I started looking at all the other paradoxes in physics. There's lots of paradoxes in physics. You know, you have a big bang. Well, where did that ball of plasma come from? That ball of plasma that's so tight and full of, you know, energy mm -hmm. and heat and pressure. And then at time equals zero, it starts to expand according to some rule set. And we end up with our universe, right? Big bang theory. But where did that ball of plasma come from? Because it didn't come from our universe. But if our universe is everything that's real, then, well, that's a logical problem we've got there, you know? So that's just another one of those paradoxes that's in physics. And physics has dozens of paradoxes of things we just don't know. Matter of mm -hmm. fact, even the very basic things of physics, we don't know where they come from. If you say, where does time come from? Where does space come from? Where does charge come from? Where does spin come from? All these things are basic things of physics, and nobody has a clue of where they come from. They just are. They've got no cause. See, they're outside of the physical causality, just like the stuff at the Big Bang, you know, that ball of plasma. It's outside physical causality. So there's lots of things like that in physics that are paradoxes. And physicists say, oh, well, they're just givens. Well, you know, that's just... That's not an answer. <laughs> That's just a, you know, wave your hand and, you know, and forget it and go on kind of a thing. It's not really an answer. So I was able to understand all of those things and give a logical explanation. And all I needed was basically one assumption, and that's that consciousness exists. We could start with that one assumption that consciousness exists. It is. And I also add that evolution exists, but I can see that evolution has to exist if consciousness exists. I can derive that second one from the first one, but I, I pull those out and say, that's it. So if you start with just that assumption and apply deductive logic to it, you can end up with understanding consciousness and being able to derive physics. So the way basically that it worked, the way I put it together was that because I had done all this work with Bob and, and had spent hundreds of hours out of body and going places and seeing things and doing things and interacting out of body, I had some facts that I had developed that I knew were true, just experimental facts. But these were all facts inside my own head. Okay, so these are subjective facts. Mm -hmm. They're facts to me in my experience. And I knew my experience then was real. So I had these facts based on my experience. You know, just like when uh, physicists do an experiment in a laboratory, they develop facts based on their experience with that apparatus, you know, with that experiment. It's the same thing. That's what we call facts. You know, it's something that your experience tells you is true, has to be true. Well, I was doing experiments in the outer body and I've had these facts. And one of the facts was that consciousness is fundamental. I knew that because I could use my mind to modify the exterior world to some extent. You know, I could make things change here. That's healing, using your mind to heal or do other mm -hmm. things. You know, you can use your mind to affect other things. Dennis used to be really good at using his mind to make a parking place show up because <laughs> where we worked was right downtown and you wouldn't get within a half a mile of that place to park. 
you know, by eight o'clock in the morning, you know, if you didn't get there at seven thirty, you know, or seven, you were going to hike a half a mile to get the car parked. And Dennis didn't come in that early, but he started using his mind to have a parking place for him when he got there. And he would use that. And sure enough, he said about, he kept data on it. He said about 80% of the time, he'd have a parking space open up right in front of him when he got there. And you know, that's pretty precise with timing because if it opened up 30 seconds earlier, somebody else would have gotten, because the parking areas are just, you know, cars are, you know. Circling. Everybody's circling, looking for a spot. And it had to open up just as he got there so that he would get it. So he was about 80%. He could do that in the morning. I understand that's a mechanism in consciousness that your intention modifies future probability. And our reality is probability-based. It's not matter-based. It's probability-based. So you can use your intent to modify the probability of what will happen in the future. Now, you can't force it to happen the way you want. All you can mm -hmm. do is change the probability. And if that probability started out a million to one, well, you may move it all the way down to a hundred to one, but it's still not likely to happen. You know, So it's not that you could just control anything with your mind, but you could modify the probability because if it was, you know, 40 to 60, oh, well, that's in range. You could probably shift that around to where it was higher that it would happen and less that it didn't. So it depends on the uncertainty of the situation. Well, with parking and cars all coming around and every once in a while one goes, the timing there, there's a lot of uncertainty when somebody decides, well, I got to go now. And they go out and get in their car and, you know, pull out of a parking space. It's a lot of uncertainty based with that. Mm -hmm. It's mostly intuitive. People just, they talk and they're whatever. And then they suddenly say, oh, I got to go now, you know, so it's a lot of stuff. So he was just modifying the future probability of events going on with him and his time and driving his car. And it worked most of the time. Now, when it didn't work, meant that it was just too improbable for him to change it. There just wasn't anybody that was just in the idea of leaving in and around that time. You know, it just wasn't there. Well, when it just wasn't there, then that was part of the 20% where it didn't work. Now the probability of him getting the space was maybe, you know, one in a hundred, whereas before it was maybe only one in 20. Mm -hmm. or one in. So that's how that sort of thing works. So I knew that consciousness was fundamental because consciousness could modify things in the physical reality, but the physical reality could not modify anything in consciousness. So the arrow of causality was from consciousness to the physical world, not the other way around. So the idea that the brain creates consciousness is just backwards. They call that the hard problem. Well, it's hard because it doesn't work that way. They're never going to solve that problem because that's not how it works. The brain does not create consciousness. So I have this whole set of facts that I had learned from my ability to get out of body on demand and rather precisely with hundreds mm -hmm. of hours of practice. And I also, as a physicist, had a whole bunch of facts about the way the physical world worked. So I started looking for a model that would answer both sets of facts. What is it that would answer all of those facts, not just one set or the other, but all of them. So that's what I came up with. That's what I did for the 35 years was try to solve that problem. What sort of model was there that would answer all of those facts? And that's what I basically came up with. So that's the model of reality. 
I suspect that in time, what my viewpoint of physics will become mainstream. You know, mm -hmm. I suspect that in time right now, you know, materialism, you know, the belief in materialism is so strong, it'll take a while before there's enough open-mindedness amongst physicists to embrace the theory. But eventually, I think it will be embraced and it will be accepted and become mainstream because it's just better physics. You can do uh, more physics with it. I think it's going to end sooner than you think. I, I think it's imminent, like next three to five years. Easy. I think it's coming up in the near future, too. I think it's going to come up. You know, Planck made a very interesting statement, Max Planck, when mm -hmm. uh, he was asked about this, because, you know, they got a lot of pushback when they started talking about quantum physics and probability. And there was a lot of physicists who said, nonsense, it can't possibly work that way. You guys are all screwed up. You must be doing something wrong. You know, it was the same sort of thing. So Planck responded to that, and he said, you know, he says, physics progresses one funeral at a time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a quote of his. Basically, he was saying the old guard that is all wound up in their beliefs just has to pass on. And when they pass on, you know, more open-minded, younger people coming up will be able to embrace those ideas. And I think that's true. I think that's where we are now. And uh, the new physicists that are going to come up over the next decade or so are going to come up with a lot more open-minded, bigger picture thinking than the old guard. And I think they will see the fact that this big toe theory of mine is better science. It's logical. There's nothing woo-woo about it. It's just logic. And it works. And it explains everything that the objective world, you know, everything we know about the objective world, it still explains all of that. Plus, it explains a lot more. It explains all those paradoxes, things that we know but we don't understand. And besides that, it makes a good model of the objective world, but it also creates a model of the subjective world. And this is an objective model of the subjective world. So now we have a science of the subjective as well as a science of the objective. So you want to know why you are full of stress and unhappy and can't find satisfaction in your life? Well, this will tell you why in a logical way, what the problems are. Now, it doesn't make it necessarily easy for you to fix it. A lot of those problems are, you have to change who you are. You know, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but you can understand it exactly, you know, what is creating this problem. So now the subjective world also has a science that describes it. So you get both of these out of this understanding of consciousness. So it's just better science. So the way it works is, and I kind of go to the bottom line because it's a big paradigm shift. Actually, there's about two or three paradigm shifts all in a row that make this very hard to grasp. It's very difficult to grasp. And people have hard times with paradigm shifts. It's like mm -hmm. you just don't get it. They can't possibly be true. They don't make sense. You know, it's a paradigm shift is a difficult thing. Well, this paradigm shift is probably bigger than the last three or four paradigm shifts that we've had to swallow in the last, you know, two or 300 years, you know, big paradigm shift that the earth wasn't the center of the universe. Oh, no, a big paradigm shift that the earth wasn't flat, a big paradigm shift that our whole solar system was just one tiny little piece of something much larger, you know, as physicists could see further and further out and our science developed, you know, we kept getting these paradigm shifts where you know, we used to think, well, it was all about us, and we were at the center of the universe, and everything went around us, and 
you know, we had this idea, you know, we're the only thing that's conscious and we have this. And now we've learned that a lot of that isn't true. Well, these are all paradigm shifts. And when you have a paradigm shift, most of the people who are around at the time say, that's impossible. It couldn't be that way. It just doesn't make any sense. If the world were round, all the people on the other side would fall off. Right. It just doesn't make any sense. You know, what do you mean it's round? It couldn't be. It has to be flat so the people on one side and at the bottom is nothing on the, on the well, bottom. Unfortunately, there's some people who still believe that. But <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. It's that sort of thing. So I will tell you, but it's going to be a big paradigm shift. So it'll be hard for you to grasp that it works that way. But it really mm -hmm. does work that way, and it solves a lot of problems. And that is that consciousness is an information system. That's what consciousness is all about. It's an information system. I define consciousness as awareness with a choice. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, awareness means it receives data. It's aware of things. You know, what am I aware of? Well, I'm aware of you sitting there in your chair on the other side of me with a green screen behind you. That's what I'm aware of. And how do I get that? Well, it's data. You know, I take data in through my eyes and I work on that data. So basically, awareness is input, input data. And this consciousness that is an information system has to take that data and do something with it. One, it has to have memory. If it didn't have memory, then anything it saw would be the first time it saw anything. <laughs> so you need memory for some kind of continuity. It has to be able to do processing on the data because it has to be able to determine which ways up, you know, what's good, what are the good things to do and what are the bad things to do. So you need mm -hmm. a purpose, you need a direction, an arrow that tells you which way you'd rather go. You don't just do random stuff and see what happens, you work toward a purpose. So you need a purpose of some sort. Well, the purpose of any information system is to lower its entropy. If you have an information system, let's just define a generic information system as something that has a lot of bits. And all the bits are random. There's no information if all the bits are random. That's the basic definition of random. There is no information. So you start ordering those bits, you can create information. Oh, here's a couple of bits I ordered. Now I can make that stand for something. You know, I can uh, count the bits and learn arithmetic. I can say bits in this configuration are a symbol for this idea. And I can do things with it. It's building information. So a measure of disorder or randomness is called entropy. It's a measure of disorder. So you lower entropy by creating ordering of a few bits that lowers the entropy of the system. You've got less randomness in some order. So information systems evolve by lowering their entropy. Now, this is my assumption, of course, that we have this information, this consciousness, but the consciousness is is simplest consciousness you could possibly have. It's just aware that it could be in state one or state two. That's mm -hmm. all it is. But it is a self-aware. It knows, you know, I am and I can be in this state or that state. And that's my assumption going in. And just from that, I can derive logically everything else. You know, it's sort of like giving the biologist a living cell. All right, biologist, you got a living cell here on this planet Earth. And they can say, great, that's all I need. And I can evolve everything on a planet. I just need a living cell. And I can create everything on the planet through evolution. It evolves, it starts to become, it's, it's a single cell. Now it's 
It learns how to split and become a double sale because that is lower entropy, more order. You've got two things, more complexity is more order. And then it can be multiple cells. And then when it has that, the next step is that those cells form organs, you know, specialists in various areas. So that's more order, more structure, more complexity, because it makes it more survivable and more Mm -hmm. easily procreate. Because those are our criteria in this reality, procreate and survive, survive and procreate, I guess, in that order. So that's how you win the game is to survive and procreate. So you're going to look at those cells and say, all right, guys, that defines your mission. You know, <laughs> Live and procreate. That's what you're all about. So they do. And they end up doing clever things like multi cells and organs and, you know, things evolve. Well, I do the same thing with consciousness. I say, okay, consciousness, that's all you can do. You're aware that you can be an A or B. Well, let's make that A and B a one or a zero. It's data. It's a, it's a bit. Mm-hmm. Okay? If you can have a one and a zero, then you can have a one, a zero, a one and a zero, and a one and a zero. Just sequentially, you can make ones and zeros or any other pattern you want. And you can make patterns of patterns of patterns and sequences. You know, once you have time, you can have sequences of patterns. So there's all kinds of things you can do. You can discover math. Oh, I got this bit and this bit and that bit. How many bits do I have all together? <laughs> you know, there's just lots of things that come from that ordering. And if you follow what that consciousness has to do in order to keep lowering its entropy in order to evolve, then you end up with us. It's all part of a logical evolution. And it's not that you can end up with us, that it's a possibility, but that you have to end up with us. So this is not doing, the logic isn't this could happen. The logic is it has to happen this way because otherwise you come to an end of where you can evolve. Your evolution starts to stop. So if you mm-hmm. want to keep evolving, you know, that's the driver. As long as you want to keep evolving, then these things have to happen kind of in this order. And biology is the same way. You know, you don't suddenly end up with people. You've got to start with jellyfish, you know, and mm-hmm. work your way up. You have a certain order that you have to progress through. And you will get that progression eventually because that is the natural progression of lowering entropy. It happens that way. Now, the critters can be in different form. Maybe you have six-legged dogs instead of four-legged dogs if they happen to evolve that way. But that's all right. That's a minor difference. You still end up with dogs and you end up with, you know, that functionality. So the details aren't that important as far as evolution goes, but the survivability and able to procreate, that's what's important. That's the drive. It's the structure, not the form is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. So anyway, I can do that. And I just follow this up logically. If this happens, then it, it gets to this point and evolution slows down because it doesn't have another big step. You know, it's kind of stuck unless it does this. Well, it does this and then it takes off and it does some more and gets stuck again unless it does this and it does that. And then here we are. So what that does is tells us that and now I'm going to jump from that introduction all the way to the end and say, okay, here's the end point. We are not bodies. This body of mine, I call Tom Campbell and your body, you call Sean. Patrick, that is not you. You are consciousness. You are a piece of consciousness. And that body is your avatar. Mm -hmm. Consciousness is the player. 
Okay, that means we're living in a computed reality. We're living in a virtual reality where consciousness is the player and the bodies are the avatar. Now, that's not to say that reality is bits, right, or like a computer simulation. It, it could be, but it could also be some subset of consciousness reality, something like that. No, that does say that it's a simulation. Okay. That says it is a simulation. This is a virtual reality, and this is a simulation. Now, look at it this way. All virtual realities have, have certain characteristics, okay? So let's take one we know. I don't know. I'm an old guy, so I watch my kids play World of Warcraft. That's passe now, okay. you know. It's an old thing, but we just use that because... They'd probably yeah. say Fortnite or, I don't know, I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, Fortnite, I'm not even right. It's the same, I guess Fortnite would be... But I don't know the characters in Fortnite, but... I, I don't either. World of Warcraft works for me, though. I, yeah, okay. I'm more familiar so let's with say that. we're World of Warcraft, and you're a... I don't know. World of Warcraft probably has elves in it, doesn't it? I'm not sure. But let's say there's a, you're an elf in World of Warcraft. All right. Now, that elf is the avatar. The player is the consciousness. The player makes all the choices for the avatar. The avatar can't make any choices for itself. So if the player doesn't make any choices, the avatar just sits there and wiggles, you know, just sits there and vibrates a little. Just to, they do that to let you know that it's alive looking, you know, it doesn't look dead. So it sits there and it wobbles. So the player has to tell it to fight or to run or to jump or to dance or whatever it wants it to do. So the player makes all the choices, okay? Now, if you are in that reality, you're in the world of Warcraft, you're a viewpoint of the avatar. Take the avatar's viewpoint. From the avatar's viewpoint, the computer that's computing the reality can't be inside the world of Warcraft reality. It has to be outside of the world of Warcraft reality. The computer creates that virtual reality, so it can't be in the virtual reality, right? Mm -hmm. So what that means is that the computer is non-physical from the viewpoint of the elf. And the player is also non-physical from the viewpoint of the elf. And the player and the computer have to be in the same reality because they're talking to each other all the time. They're communicating. They got a data stream flowing between them. So they both have to be of the same stuff. They both have to be, in this case, consciousness. All right, so what does that mean? That means you're the player. Your body is the avatar. You are a piece of consciousness, and the computer is another piece of consciousness. The computer is a piece of that consciousness system that has configured itself as a computer. You've got a big consciousness system that is the mother of all, right? It's at the bottom of the pyramid. It's the source. So this source can configure itself as a computer if it likes. It knows math. It's figured that out. And it can cut a subset of itself or get a piece of itself, let's say partitioned off, that it calls an individuated unit of consciousness, and that's you. You're the player. You're just a piece of the system. So why would a system go to the trouble of making pieces that could play something that it simulates? You know, this seems like, well, why would it go to all that trouble to do that? Well, because we evolve by the quality of the choices we make. If our choices are low entropy choices, we evolve. If our choices are high entropy choices, we de-evolve. That's just the way it is. That evolving toward lower entropy is sort of equivalent to the earth things evolving toward being able to procreate and survive. You know, that's the rule that drives everything. So we want to continue to lower our entropy. 
And if we're part of the system, so as we pieces lower our entropy, the whole system lowers its entropy because we're a part of it. This is one big consciousness system. Okay, now, initially, there was no virtual reality. Initially, there was just consciousness, and the consciousness evolved as a monolithic thing. It was just a piece of consciousness, and it got ones and zeros together and learned and got to a point where its evolution was slowing down a lot because it had kind of done all the things it could think of to evolve, and it was maybe doing them better and better, but it slowed down. So what did it do? It created a subset of itself, set that aside, well, partition, a virtual machine. I don't know if you do computer mm -hmm. speak or not, but a, a virtual machine yeah. is just a machine inside of a machine, right? A virtual machine and gives it free will. Now you have things that have both have free will. Now the possibilities go up some because you're gonna have different ideas and different attitudes. So it makes thousands of those things. And now you've got the social system of all of these individuated units of consciousness and they all have free will and they're all interacting. Now the possibilities of that suddenly are huge compared to the possibilities what one monolithic thing can do. Because mm -hmm. now you've got lots of different viewpoints and different experience bases for those individual pieces of consciousness. All right, so the first virtual reality that was created was when the larger consciousness system created the protocols for conversation, for language, right? Language needs rules. So a virtual reality is defined as a reality defined by rules. That's what makes a virtual reality. It's, it's defined by some sort of rule set and it needs to have some kind of purpose in it, mm -hmm. okay? So now World of Warcraft, the rules or the physics or whatever that, you know, the players can do, you know, the elf can't fly, the dragon only has so many hit points or whatever, you know, these are the rules of the game. So the rules create context, it creates ways of interaction, it's ways things can interact. So you have communication protocols that says about vocabulary and syntax and all the rest of it. Now you have rules, that's a virtual reality. And the players are all the pieces of consciousness, they can all get on there and communicate with each other now that they have that rules. First virtual reality, it's just a space set aside that within that space you abide these rules. You know, that creates a virtual reality. Now, okay, so they're growing now faster. Again, their evolution has picked up because you have the interaction of all these things, but then it slows down again because the amount of the kind of experience you get in a big chat room, this is like a great big chat room, is kind of limited. You know, what do you do in a big chat room? There's just not a whole lot of consequential stuff going on there. You know, you can say whatever you want to say to whoever you want to say it to. And so what? Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a lot of consequences. So the choices carry very little weight. There's not a lot of evolution gained one way or another in this big chat room. So the system then would have to say, well, I need another virtual reality that has tighter rules, rules that define interactions between individuals so that there's consequences that are meaningful and significant. So what it does is it comes up with a rule set and it comes up with a, uh, a set of initial conditions. And then it punches the run button and lets those initial conditions change according to the rule set. Well, what's the rule set? The rule set's what we call physics. 
It's all the rules of how things work. And this is a virtual reality where anything you do affects others. And the things they do affects you. So it's all intertangled with each other. And now there's lots of important decisions because the decisions you make affect everyone and they mm -hmm. affect you. So that suddenly gives us space in which the choices will help us evolve more. Moral choices, ethical choices, choices that have a lot of significance. If I make this choice, 100 people die. If I make that choice, we all get a raise. So you need a virtual reality that's got more rules in it than just communication protocols. So that mm -hmm. it creates more significant interactions between the players. Okay, now how do you do that? Well, like I say, you make up a, a set of rules and a set of initial conditions and you let it evolve. Now we do that in a lot of computer science labs and universities, they do that. They, they start with initial conditions and rule sets and let things evolve. And they're getting better and better at it. They can resolve, you know, little realities that depend on that rule set. So we do this sort of thing ourselves. We know how that works. And usually you end up tweaking a little bit here and tweaking a little bit there to make it go the way you want it to go. So the system did that. And, you know, it's like digital Big Bang, take one. And the initial conditions start to expand and cool and do the things they did as, as time goes on. And then the whole thing falls apart. Well, let's dial gravity down a little bit. Big Bang, too. And it goes on and it goes on. Well, now we're like... Big bang, 8,025, you know, and you hit the run button. And in all that time, what you've done is you've taken a bunch of constants that are part of the initial conditions and part of the rule set, and you've honed them, you've refined them to be just balanced to the point that this thing will last long enough to do what you want it to do, to create avatars for the players, okay? So what do we physicists find when we look out at the universe? We find that there are the set of four or five numbers that mm -hmm. if you changed any one of them, even in the ninth collapses. decimal plate, the whole thing collapses and goes to hell, right? Yeah. And yeah. how could that possibly happen just by random? You know, evolution's just random. And how could five numbers randomly just happen to come together so well-tuned that you couldn't change any one of them, you know, in the ninth decimal place without it all going to hell. Well, of course, that's not going to happen. Random things don't create that kind of fine tuning. So this is why you have that, because there was a whole lot of trial and error before the system came up with the right initial conditions and the right rule set to create something that was stable. And in the laboratories, they do the same things. They start up things and they crash in a millisecond, mm -hmm. you know, and then they get it to go to seconds and then they get it to go minutes. And, you know, they fiddle with the rules and fiddle with the stuff to try to get the thing to, to last longer to see how it's going to work out. Well, that's the way this worked out. So that's why we have the simulation and the rule set that we do. It was not programmed. It evolved it evolved within the larger consciousness system. Now, another thing I'd like to point out is that we now have a social system. We have the larger consciousness system, but we have all, a lot of piece parts of it, virtual machines mm -hmm. in it that form, you know, billions of individual units of consciousness. 
and they're all interacting with each other. Now, the whole point of this whole system is to lower its entropy. If you enjoyed this video, please click on like, subscribe, and the notification button so that you're alerted anytime I post something new. Oh, <laughs>